The path to glory winds through darkness and judgment. It winds through sin and sickness. There is the darkness of war and catastrophe, of chaos around us, of depravity, of man's inhumanity to man. The path to glory inevitably comes through dark territory. It comes through the darkness of God's judgment upon His people and through the substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus. It comes from darkness to light, to sin, from sin to forgiveness. It comes from you know, the valley of the shadow of death into the eternal kingdom of joy and peace forever. There's a certain amount of dark territory we always have to walk through. Isaiah shows us this. It's like the old, there's a famous hymn you've heard, or not hymn, but a sermon that you've heard. And it may have come from a preacher here in San Diego. S.M. Lockridge preached for 40 years at Calvary Baptist in San Diego. And he had a sermon. There were others who preached this sermon. It's kind of famous. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Friday is when the darkness closes in. And it seems as if the light of the glory of God is nailed to a tree and is completely in shadows. It seems like the enemies of Jesus won. But Sunday is coming. And when the first rays of light hit the tomb and revealed there was no longer an occupant and the stone was rolled away, we know now that the rays of God's gospel began to penetrate all the dark places on this planet. So we live in Friday, but listen, Sunday's coming. That is how Isaiah traces the history of our faith and it is represented in the structure of the book. There are 39 chapters of, gosh, condemnation and judgment. Now there are rays of light, flashes of God's grace throughout these 39 chapters. I'm not apologizing for Isaiah. One of the greatest prophets that our people have ever seen. But it does get pretty dark when we're studying through it. It's not till chapter 40 and for the next 27 chapters, the light bursts forth in comfort and joy in the glory of God. And so that's how we have to look at this lengthy book. The first 11 chapters, or 12 chapters, uh, are about God's condemnation and judgment upon His own people. And that's where we're right in the middle of that. Um, the history of our faith is paradise and paradise lost. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, paradise found again. And you see that perfectly illustrated in chapters 2, 3, and 4. So my intention is to take these three chapters 
as a, a uh, signature. And I thought I could do it in one sermon, and I realized this week that I could not, but it's still a unit. And so the way it works is there is a glimpse of glory in chapter 2, where Pastor Brent read the first five verses. And then from chapter 2, verse 6, all the way through chapter 4, verse 1, there is this path through darkness. It's up and down. It is um, the in-between time for you and me. For people who are born in the darkness and born again in the light, we are here knowing we're, we're on the way to glory. We're bound for glory and yet we walk in the darkness. And this judgment that we see is part of it. There's kind of two kinds of a darkness in the scripture. There is the darkness of man's sin, which is ugly and um, horrible. And then there is the purity and holiness of God's judgment, the darkness of his wrath, which is terrifying. That's the three hours of darkness when Jesus was on the cross was God's wrath poured out upon his son. So we wind through this dark territory, but by chapter 4, verse 2, the last four or five verses of this short chapter is a glimpse of glory again. And so it's a really interesting, I mean, this is our faith in three chapters. And I, I want to explore it that way with you. If we get bogged down in the details, we'll all fall asleep. Well, I won't fall asleep because I enjoy talking, but you could. So I would have to come out there and tiptoe up next to you and... And just yell really loud right in your ear, you know. They used to have ushers with um, like ticklers, you know. They go around. I mean, the guy's preaching two hours so that you needed a reminder to stay awake. Um, and so we could provide that. I have a giant uh, squirt gun that someone gave me. It's one of those, you know, you pump it up and you can shoot. I could, I could, put, I could hit Jaden from here. Jaden's not going to go to sleep. Why am I on this? Why, I was doing so well, staying on task. Anyway, so I could do that. And if we get into just the details, we're, we're liable to flounder a bit. I'll try not to. But I want you to see the big picture. So why don't we, we start with a glimpse of glory in Isaiah chapter 2. The first four verses we'll read again. Um, the superscript, the, the words of introduction, tell us that this word was given concerning Judah and Jerusalem to Isaiah, the son of Amos. It's the very same wording that was given in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. And he goes on to say, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it, many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that we, He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore." These words, almost word for word, are given us in Micah chapter 4 as well. Um, and I don't know that the scholars are settled on who said it first. Well, God said it first. 
And he is giving us a promise, just a glimpse, not a lot of detail at this point. There's more coming in the book of a millennial kingdom when God will reign and Jerusalem will be the center of the action, where that will be the, the capital, you might say, of his reign on the earth. Yeah, it's, a, it's a burst of light, though the darkness, we're going to have to walk through it a bit in a minute. Let me just mention some of the themes that are obvious in this coming kingdom. Again, not a lot of detail, but um, you'll notice the preeminence of our God as a main theme. It shall come up to pass, verse 2 says, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, he's talking about Mount Zion, which is in elevation not very high. I mean, the Mount of Olives is higher than Mount Zion. But Zion was and will be the site of the temple. And he's really saying metaphorically that when the kingdom comes, God's preeminence, the fact that he is king and there is no other, will be firmly established. No doubt he is the king. He's our God. And that is, will be such a welcome joyous relief to us. Um, established as the highest of the mountains, lifted above the hills. And then he gives us another hint. It's kind of the magnetic attraction of our God and of this kingdom. And he says, all the nations shall flow to it. Flowing is a word like water flows. This is flowing uphill. You know, the nations will come to Mount Zion. And many people shall come, not under coercion. They'll say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. It'll be a wonderful day and a refreshing one to see people flocking toward the center of God's presence rather than running from it. Another thing that we can learn about the coming kingdom and the glory of it is that it will be a center for teaching and for sending. He says um, that we may, he may teach us his ways, I'm in verse 3, and that we may walk in his paths. So this is not an academic learning. You know, some, sometimes you go to college and you get a bunch of courses you have to take, intro to sociology, and you take that course and you think, this will never, I will never remember anything past the final. I will do all I can to forget everything, which unless you love sociology, some of you people, but probably nobody does. And, uh, maybe only the sociology prof, you know? Well, it's not like that in the millennial kingdom. People come because they want to learn so that they can live like God wants them to. So that's why he says, um, he'll teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. And not only that, but there is this sense of missionary enterprise. There's this sense, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How amazing will that be? Um, another clue or a snapshot, you might say, is the justice of God that is meted out. How he will judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. That's the first part of verse 4. That's another thing about the coming kingdom. The Lord himself will decide disputes. And out of that will come God's peace. 
the great shalom. We know Jesus, Isaiah tells us actually, that he's the Prince of Peace. And the Prince of Peace shall bring peace. And so much so that symbolically he's saying they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks at the end of verse 4. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So implements of warfare and, and killing shall turn into instruments of production and actually of farming. Isn't that amazing? Well, what's our appetite for the kingdom to come? doesn't tell us everything. Um, but at the end of this short section, this glimpse of glory, Isaiah gives us one of only two exhortations in chapters 2 to 4. You might try to find this week the second one. But the first one is verse 5. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see what's coming. You know that it's tough out there sometimes and you can hardly see to take another step. The law of the Lord is our, is our light, a path that illuminates the path just for us to walk forward. So let's do that. And this is a transition because actually when Isaiah writes this, he knows his people are not going to do that. As a whole, uh, Judah is under judgment. So what that entails is from verse 6 of chapter 2 all the way through verse 1 of chapter 4, that 44 verses I think it is, he speaks about the darkness of judgment. And um, I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out how is this organized anyhow? It's not, I finally just figured out it wasn't linear, you know? Linear is like, well, A, and then that leads me to B, and I'll talk about C now, and then D. But Isaiah doesn't do it that way, and I... I'm not surprised when I finally figured it out. This is poetry, by the way. Do you see how in your Bible it's formatted? There are some texts which are paragraph style and they're left justified and it looks just like, well, it's narrative or whatever. But then there's a whole ton of Isaiah that is uh, center justified. I mean, it's all centered. It's poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. So he's delivering the words of judgment in poetic form. And naturally, the themes uh, swirl around. They are more cyclical. It's like A, and then C, and then A comes back, and then there's B, and then A again. So what I finally understood, at least I think I understood it, the way that this long section is organized is it's all about judgment, but there seem to be three themes. There is the theme of why God is mad in the first place. The reason for his judgment. Why is his judgment coming? And then there is, um, not a lot, but there is some detail about how God delivers his judgment. How does God judge? What is the means of judgment? And then there, is, there are sections, cyclically, we return to them a few times, that are the consequences of judgment. Now, if you keep it in mind that way, um, different paragraphs, some are A, some are C, some are B, and, and it swirls around. I, I want to attempt to just point out to you why God is upset. Why is he going to judge? 
Why is he taking such drastic matters toward his own people, to, toward Jerusalem and Judah? And I have four of them that I'll share with you. And they're in different spots in these chapters. So the first is what I'm going to call misplaced trust in verses 6 to 9 of chapter uh, 2. And I'll read it. So verse 6 says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because... So do you see how Isaiah is saying, Okay, Lord, I understand that you've rejected your people. Why? Well, because... And then he tells them, they're full of things from the east, fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Land is filled with silver and gold. No end to their treasures. Land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands so, that their own, so what is their own fingers have made. Uh, in other words, God's people have placed their trust in other things, rather than God himself. One of those things happens to be um, authorities other than God. People from the East, the intrigue of different cultures and different ways of looking at life. And they, the Lord specifically said, hey, when you get into the land, don't fraternize. Don't mess with these people. They will corrupt you, which is, of course, exactly what happened. And that's why he mentions um, your land is full of things like fortune tellers and you're striking hands with the children of um, foreigners. It is um, trusting the authority that isn't not God's authority at all. Then another way they misplace trust is in their own riches. Verse 7 says the land is filled with silver and gold. Then there is misplaced trust in military prowess. Um, notice he says, the land is filled with horses and no, no end to chariots. In other words, they, they are putting their trust in their military might. And then he, he finishes up this section by talking about idolatry. Stuff you make with your hands. You're worshiping it. You put in your trust in a piece of wood or something a silversmith made rather than the God of heaven. God is not like that. And judgment falls upon his people for that. So that's just one, one thing. Another reason for judgment is simply pride. Verse 12 and following, I won't read all the verses, but notice verse 12 says, The Lord of hosts has a day, it's called the day of the Lord, against all that's proud and lofty, all that's lifted up, it shall be brought low. And then he mentions a whole bunch of symbols of pride. Cedars, Lebanon, oaks of Bashan, lofty mountains, uplifted hills, high towers, fortified walls, grand ships of Tarshish. Beautiful craft is the way the ESV says it in the end of verse 16. Every once in a while we ought to maybe um, inventory our lives based on these Old Testament judgments. You know, what are you prideful about would you be willing to ask someone who loves you who tell you the truth I mean it's difficult to get that combination someone who loves you and would tell you the truth there are people who love you and won't tell you the truth there are people who do not love you and they will tell you the truth all day long so you kind of want <laughs> the speaking the truth in love 
Would you be willing to say, is there a lot of pride going on in my life? Where do you see it? What am I taking credit for that's really God's? That might be a good exercise, you know. Another reason for judgment, we've talked about misplaced trust, about pride. There is, I've just called it glorying in shame. After all these words of judgment, in chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord says, look on their face. The look on their faces bear witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They brought evil on themselves. It's the boomerang effect of sin. It's going to come back and whack you upside the head. He mentioned Sodom again. Last week we talked about his reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom, that wicked city, it had many prevailing sins, not just one, but the signature sin was homosexuality. And rather than, um, rather than work with it, deal with it, try to uh, walk according to God's plan and not your own, they flaunted it. They gave into it. They had pride parades about it. Uh, they were um, more than glad to recruit into it. God is sickened by that kind of stuff. There's a similar, I didn't write it on the outline, but there's another expression of this over in uh, chapter, well, it's still in chapter 3, verse 16. If you just drop down there for a second. He addresses the daughters of Zion. And please understand, I am not doing this. I am, I am not Isaiah. I'm only a preacher. So if do not be offended at me, especially women of our church, whom I love and respect. But what he says about the daughters of Zion is that they're haughty, they walk with outstretched necks, they glance wantonly with their eyes, they mince along as they go, tinkling with their feet. And then he says, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. I'm not going to read the last part of the ESV there. Um, so evidently, one of the great prevailing sins was the way that the women behaved then in that day. And rather than being focused on modesty and upon building a home and faithfulness and loyalty to that home and to their husband, they walked around and the word wantonly is used, flaunting uh, outward beauty. It's a sad thing. Don't you find it um, just a tragedy when you see that the influencers in our culture for women, I'm talking about the secular influences, have largely abandoned modesty as a virtue. And, and yet, a Me Too movement begins because uh, people don't want to be looked at as sexual objects. It's, it's schizophrenic, is what it is. And um, the, the idea of um, monogamy itself, and of marriage in particular, and building a home, I mean, that is like the stupidest thing nowadays. I'm just saying to you, in the 8th century B.C., God, God took his people out. And this was part of the reason. They were flaunting their sin. That they should have been ashamed of. There's one more that it seems like is a reason for judgment. And it has to do with corrupt leadership. 
At verse 13 in chapter 3, he says the Lord is taking his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. Okay, so what's he judging them for? Well, verse 14, the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who devoured the vineyard, says the Lord. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor. So those who were charged with caring and protecting and providing for people had instead exploited them to the degree that they were getting wealthy and grinding the poor into the dust without another thought. And God says that will not stand. Now it's not just the political realm, but I mean, don't you, when you see this, don't you think about the um, American politics? I mean, don't you, don't you think about people who, who ran on a shoestring going to Washington and becoming multimillionaires by the time they get off the government dole? How'd they get all that money? Their salary was, I don't know what it is, but it's not enough to become a multimillionaire. What happened? But it's not just politicians obviously sometimes in the church those who are supposed to lead and who are supposed to feed and provide and care and shepherd fleece the sheep instead God hates that and he will judge it and so that these are some of the reasons I'm not saying we've got a whole book to go through these are not all the reasons for judgment um, and he specifies very clearly later on when he starts talking about different city-states uh, why he's judging them. Some of the same themes continue to emerge though, but I, I wanted you to have an idea of why, why is God so mad at his people? Well, here are some of the reasons. And bear in mind, this comes on the heels of, of years and years and years and years of sending prophets to say, hey, you guys, get it together. Repent, turn to me. And finally, the Lord had had it. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the means of judgment, how God judged his people. And I'm not saying these are the only ways that God's judgment comes, but I do see these as three distinct ones. One way that God, who, who has plenty of reason to judge his people, one way that his judgment is carried out is by simply revealing his glory. Look at verse 10 in chapter 2. And let's read it carefully because I think there's more here than you first see. So he's talking about God's rejection of his people. And then verse 10 says, Enter into the rock, hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Which sounds a lot like that last song that we sang. It's not that God did anything. It's not that he blew up a couple mountains to show uh, his power. It's not that he just emptied out the sea and said, see what I can do? It's not that at all. He just showed up. He just revealed his glory. And that was enough. That is judgment in itself. Remember how that little dialogue, so interesting dialogue of Moses with uh, the Lord in Exodus 33. And Moses said, Lord, you know, I would really love to see your glory. How about that? You know, I've been faithfully hanging in there. Would, couldn't I see your glory? And the Lord said, hey, Moses, come on now. You can't see my glory and live. I'll give you a glimpse. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and you'll see a little bit. But you can't see the whole thing. 
Now, we on the other side of the cross, those of us who know Jesus, are not going to be judged for this and in this way. But there is a parallel in our sanctification. When we see the glory of our God, when we see it in the scriptures, when we see him high and lifted up, and we sing songs about his greatness and glory, you know what it does? It grinds down the hard places in our life. It smooths things. It begins to shape our character. It's his glory that changes us. And there's, um, I think of 2 Corinthians 3, 18. I'll just read. Paul says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, sanctifies, sets us apart, cleans us up, begins to shape the image of Jesus within us. And he does so, not the only way, but certainly a primary way, through the glory of God, through our seeing his glory. Now, before the cross, if God reveals his glory, you're devastated. You can't stand before it. And the image here in chapter 2 is people are scrambling to hide away in a cave. These prideful people who thought they were so great and they didn't need God, when they saw him, they ran like rats into their holes in the ground. So God uh, reveals his glory, and it's wonderful that he does so um, so kindly in Christ, veiled in human flesh, the, the hymnals tell us in, in the Christmas songs, um, and in the beauty of his word. And as we expose ourselves to his glory and focus upon it and lift it up, that's why, you know, it's great to look in the scripture and find out what all of our needs are and what God can do for us. That's all good. But it's it's him. It is he, technically. It's the Lord, his character, and who he is, and getting close to him. That's what changes us. Sure, God can meet all of our needs, and he will. But man, we've got to focus on him. Don't focus on you. It's not about you. It's about him. All right, so revealing his glory is one thing. And uh, he just shows up and wipes people out, wipes out their their pretensions when he does so. Another means of judgment comes in chapter 3. I've titled it Stripping Away Support Systems. I'll try to explain, but in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem. That's key, taking away. He takes away from Jerusalem, from Judah, support and supply. He mentions bread, water, Mighty men and soldiers, judges and prophets, diviners and elders, and so on. What does he do? He's kicking the props out from under them. You want to trust in all these things? Look. What do you got now? Nothing. Um, he intends, part of his judgment, is to just wreck the support systems that they had developed in, from Eastern mysticism from the nature religions of the day, from their own wealth and their pride in their military power, all these things. Um, now, again, we are walking in a time when we're not, if you're, if you're saved, if you're a Christian, you're not coming under judgment because that all fell on Christ. 
But the discipline of God often looks the same in a way. Now, when God knocked the props out of his people um, and judged them, it was punitive. There's no doubt about it. He wasn't saying, I'll make you better, although that happened. But when he knocks the props out from under us, it's because he loves us. It's the tough love of a heavenly father. And so I wonder if you would think back on your life and see some of the things that were taken away from you, some of the losses you've experienced, and some of the things you failed at, and you just thought, this was it. If I could just make a go of this business, if I could just get this degree, if I could just, there's 100 applicants and I'm in the top 20, if I could just get this job and then you didn't get it. I wonder, as a child of God, if the loving hand of your father wasn't upon you and that those losses were all about who are you really going to trust. I'm so grateful the Lord has protected me from things that if I had achieved them, I, my, my loyalty would have wavered. My eyes would have been more in the mirror looking at how great I did rather than upon our great God. So he strips away support systems. He does it both in judgment and in sanctification out of his love for his children. One more that I'll mention is casting down idolatry. I think there's an overlap between stripping away support systems and casting down idolatry. Um, there's an overlap on all these things. But this is a handy way of saying, hey, there's another way that God does it. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 18, we're back to his, his indictment of the women of Jerusalem. And here's what he says. In that day, the Lord will take away the, the idolatry, the anklets, headbands, crescents, pendants, bracelets, scarves, headdresses, armlets, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, signet rings, and nose rings, festal robes, mantles, cloaks, handbags, Mirrors, linen garments, turbans, and veils. Man. And then he says, instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. So the Lord, in his judgment, wipes out the idolatry of your life. And it's not pleasant, and it, it ends badly for the people who were idolaters. So that's the reason why God judges, and this is the means by which he carries it out. Next time, I want to try to talk about the consequences of God's judgment, and there's a lot to say about that. What are you left with after you've been judged? These three chapters have a lot to say. And then, I hope to finish up next time by talking about another glimpse of God's glory at the beginning um, the, well, the, the last few verses of chapter 4. Um, for the rest of our time together, and there's not a lot of it, I, I'd like to just give you my takeaways. Here's what means something to me, what I took away from uh, what we've studied today. Um, the first and most obvious thing to me is that God demands and deserves first place in your life. He will not settle for anything less. So if you're a Christian and you feel some kind of tension in your relationship with the Lord, 
It may very well be God saying, no, 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 uh, I'm number one. And you have done everything other than that to acknowledge me. The first commandment, like I reminded you last week, says, put me first, no other gods. And so that's the, I mean, if we only had one commandment, we'd still be condemned. Um, the Lord said something quite definitive later in Isaiah. I'll just flip over there. I think I can find it. Chapter 48, verse 11, he says, now, now listen to this very blatant, firm statement. My glory I will not give to another. Are you giving his glory to somewhere else? You can, you can kind of tell by um, where you run in times of stress and fear and change. Where do you go in those times? That may very well be what's first place in your life could be very destructive. It could be addictive behaviors of one kind or another. Or it could be something that on the face of it is good. A trusted counselor, your spouse, your pastor. Those are good things. But not to put in the place of Almighty God. Paul says in Colossians, he says of Jesus, that he might have the preeminence. And that's a fancy way of saying that he should have first place. He demands it. It's not... That God walks around and saying, hey, you know, if, it, if, if you wouldn't mind worshiping me. It's a command. And not only does he demand it, but obviously he deserves it. He alone is God. That's one takeaway for me. Another takeaway is that God hates pride. And he is committed to helping you develop humility. I could have said that differently. And I thought of saying it differently. Um, God hates pride and he will he will grind it out of you you know but that seems a little harsh so what I what I try to say is uh, he hates pride uh, God opposes the proud you can look in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5 and find similar statements but gives grace to the humble you don't want to be anywhere near what God opposes if he opposes pride, don't you want to get rid of that? But he gives grace to the humble. Man, I, I want all the grace I can get, which means that pride needs to go. You can cooperate with the Lord. And so that conversation I recommended to you, someone who loves you, there's certainly got to be somebody that loves you. Someone. And who will tell you the truth. Um, if if they will respond to a serious request, it's humbling to ask this question. You have to overcome some pride to even ask it. Where do you see pride in my life? Am I obnoxious sometimes in my pride? And if they say, no, you're such a humble person, then you've got to fight pride right then, right then. Because then you think, I'm, I'm humble. How humble I am. Man, if there was a prize for humility, I would get it. So then you have to have the conversation yet again. <laughs> Maybe what you need is a person who loves you, who will tell you the truth, and who will tactfully communicate it. You know. Anyhow, um, God hates pride, but he loves humility. And he's committed to making you like Jesus. That's the whole point. It's not that he wants to grind you down. It's that he wants to make you into the image of Christ. He's preparing you for glory. We are on the pathway 
And it leads through darkness, but glory's ahead. And that's the last takeaway for me. The best is yet to come. Oh, if we could live in the light of that expectation, the hope of the gospel points us to another life, another world, a better place where all the separations and the pain and the failure and the sickness, all of these things are just a flicker of an eyelash. I don't know how much we'll even remember in those days. That's ahead for us. The scripture continually tells us to set our affections on things that are above, to look to the heavens instead of introspectingly looking within you to find out what wonderful thing is there inside of me. I mean, that's the message of mysticism and of liberal, sorry to say it, theology. There's some great things inside of you. Just find them and then celebrate them. Now, look, look to the heavens. That's where the greatness is. The best is yet to come. Let's pray. Now, our Father, we acknowledge to you that we, we deserve judgment. We're no better than your people Israel that got carried away um, into Assyria and never came back. And we're no better than your people Judah who got carried away into Babylon and then you brought a remnant back. The only claim we have to anything is that Jesus took our place on the cross and your judgment fell upon him instead of us. Teach us to live circumspectly. May we live in the light of that glory. And when the darkness seems to close in, Lord, may we hang on to the light of your word and look up and affirm what we know to be true about light and forgiveness and hope that's just ahead. Our Jesus in his glory, the best is yet to come. Thank you, Lord. In your name, amen.